Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do list one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam. With me is my co-host, Tessa. Joining us in our third chair today is Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello. I wanted to, I almost (laughs) called you erotic thriller, Matt, but that probably needs context. Yeah, I don't. Well, I mean, it could be your stage could, name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's 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 interesting that you you mentioned this as like kind of like a, a framing narrative that we can have throughout our discussion today because I think in a lot of ways that's what to me and like the three films that we're discussing kind of '90s noir in general is it, is it takes some of that erotic subtext of you know early film noir. And we're we're past the code, the Hayes Code era, so it's like, it's not the dialogue; it's just literally sex. Not to not to burn Pod too early. <laughs> well, I think we're all done here. Good night, everybody. <laughs> so we are here today. We've talked about the classic noir era of the '40s. We've talked about neo noir of the '80s, and we're going to talk about the 1990s, a decade that is known for two things above all else. Subtlety <laughs> and clear genre definition. <laughs> That's the 90s, I, all as right. As a teenager in the early 90s, at the height of the quote-unquote grunge era, if there was anything we knew, it's that our pop culture was bathed in subtlety and we knew exactly what grunge genre was. <laughs> when 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 Zach De La Roca said, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me, there were just layers of subtext <laughs> there. As many layers as we had, you know, the flannel shirt and the jean jacket <laughs> and the t-shirt. I mean, like, you know, I mean, just like it it's it's just ma- It was it, the end of history. I mean, to be fair, to be fair, if you talk to any Republicans who apparently listened to Rage Against the Machine now and are surprised to hear him go into politics, you would think that that song was full of subtle layers. <laughs> <laughs> I you know, I didn't I didn't bring this up purposefully, but I, there has been a trend on Monkey Off My Backlog recently, and this is a bit that's going to culminate in January. I just I I, I want to I want to throw the veil down for a minute here and just say this is going to pay off in January. But for the last few weeks, I haven't been able to get through a podcast without saying something about the UK. And since we brought up Rage Against the Machine, I think it's a great time to bring up. Hey. Remember when they made that song, the Christmas single, the Christmas number one a few years ago, <laughs> when Killing in the Name of was, oh, that was good times, you guys. The The genre of the Christmas single, that's another fun one. Anyway, there, that's like 30% of my asides all at once right there. Not all of them, just 30%. Okay. Spread them out. Remember, okay. you got to so, pace yourself. Yeah. Hi, welcome to segment one, which I've called, hey, remember film noir? The 90s sure do, because... <laughs> Matt was telling me before we started recording that he could definitely hear that in your voice, just reading it. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and you didn't disappoint, I... so thank you. So, unless you made a movie called The English Patient or Titanic, 
And I would have said Star Wars, but Attack of the Clones. There were very few movies that did not have elements of film noir in them. And so, because once again, we were very good at genres in the 90s, we basically, anything that had any element of film noir in it became neo-noir. David Fincher's Seven. Okay, that, okay, I'll give you that one. Really feels more like a serial killer crime thing, but sure, noir, fine. Coen Brothers Fargo checks out. I mean, that's really building on Blood Simple. Lost Highway. Okay, well, we just talked about Blue Velvet last week. That makes sense. L.A. Confidential is the noiriest noir noir set <laughs> in the noir times. Mm-hmm. That's, Bound, a tech, that's a technical description. It, it is a technical term. Uh, Bound, which we have talked about. Right. Yes, I love Bound. Uh, Bound so and good. then, and the beginning of the Carrie Ann Moss duology. You have Memento, right? Which I, I think all these things qualify as noir. But then you start to say, okay, people have called Point Break noir. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. We, I mean, we brought this up last week. The idea that, like, I mean, this gets overused because of the Supreme Court thing, but it's very much like. Noir is one of those things where when you see it, you know what it is. But a lot of these movies, I can't even see it. I think there's a, like, because I've been thinking a lot about this genre classification as, you know, as we're talking about within the 90s. And, like, a lot of them, like, you know, Point Break is an example. Some of the other ones that you have on the list, like, they're crime movies. But I don't think a, like, crime movie or, like, a heist movie necessarily is noir and like i can see how it has the pieces and where like you know it it can look like that on on paper but i guess just to to build off your point tessa it's like i think largely for me noir is a vibe right it's a mood and i think something like point break point break excuse me doesn't have that same sort of mood, even if it has kind of that cat and mouse sort of like relational element to it. No, it does. I mean, it has much more in common with the action movies of the, of the eighties. And, and yeah, she does bring some stuff in from noir, but that doesn't just because the police brought in some reggae elements does not make the police a reggae band. Okay. (laughs) There's still three white guys from Britain. So you take another film, the, the Usual Suspects, which is the most probably the most problematic film ever because its director and its star, poor Benicio del Toro. Am I right? That that movie makes much more sense from a noir sp- perspective, but I think I I think that Singer's really drafting off of Tarantino. Yeah, and yeah, you know Tarantino gets credit for directly adapting you know the king of the neo-noir paperback elmore leonard you know uh, jackie brown is and we'll talk about we are going to talk about leonard a lot more later but you know is is pulp fiction noir is reservoir dogs noir is true romance a script that tarantino wrote noir i mean i would say true romance is more noir in its relationships than Reservoir Dogs is. I think Reservoir Dogs probably has more in common with the gangster films of the 30s than it does noir. Because I I think that's interesting what you said, Matt, about like just because it's a crime film doesn't mean it's a noir film. 
And I think that those two terms have gotten maybe a little confused for people in both the 90s and, and later on, because there were crime films before the classic noir period that were definitely not that vibe, as you say. I think there's also like an element of commentary, right? And not necessarily like capital C, like, you know, this is a, this is a like statement movie and we are, you know, have a specific, you know, message film in in that sense. But I think for me, film noir, it, it comes from like, a certain point of view and like you folks were talking with with Jarrett on your your first episode a couple weeks ago um in your 40s noir about it possible noir possibly being kind of the the quintessential along with the western um american genre and i and i think for me it there needs to be that understanding or that worldview present in the work that represents kind of this at the risk of sounding too dramatic, kind of dark underbelly or like this idea of like seeing the world as it is, not necessarily like as it should be, kind of this awareness on some level. And yeah, I don't know if like Point Break or The Usual Suspects really has that in a similar way. I don't know. And by the way, I will I will accept Matt's answer as to why the Western is the the because that that whole cd underbelly i mean white hats and black hats i didn't say that yeah i didn't say and i think noir westerns do exist like they are genres that play very well together we're gonna get to a couple of those in just a second here but yeah it i i never said that like the westerns were more quintessentially american i would just say that like they are a quintessential american well no it's just been bothering me for the last couple of weeks that i i'm not disputing it i'm like but if only there was some unifying theory as to why it's those two and right well there you go i'll take that you also have in the 90s uh, or thereabouts pt anderson's first film hard eight which more or less qualifies in that neo-noir way you have uh, Shallow Grave, which is probably the film I'm most ashamed of, having not seen. Shallow Grave is an early Danny Boyle starring both Obi-Wan Kenobi and the pre-tenant Doctor Who. That's right. Ewan McGregor oh, wow. and Christopher Eccleston in a noirish movie made by Danny Boyle. Please continue to the end of this podcast before you go watch that movie. And just... <laughs> I, we, ha- we have to talk about it someday. But The Talented Mr. Ripley, which is... Good movie. It's a great movie, Matt. But is it noir? I mean, Patricia Highsmith wrote... If, if Alfred Hitchcock was a woman and a writer, he would be Patricia Highsmith. I mean, that's... I mean, Strangers on a Train is a Patricia Highsmith story that, that was adapted. Yeah. But... Does Patricia Highsmith do noir? No, but like, I think it might. I think this is where we're probably like splitting hairs, but I think it is closer than something like Point Break because I think Highsmith as, as a queer woman has a certain kind of point of view, which like speaks to, I think some of those things about like what society does to us and how we perform within society and things like that. So like that's, that's not noir, but I think, Highsmith's worldview is a little bit closer to like a noirish one. Yeah. 
But again, we're splitting hairs because I don't think talented Mr. Ripley is noir. Uh, I think there are others of hers that qualify much better as noir than that one. It's just the one that got made and the one that really made her yeah. more into a household name. Yeah. yeah I, Carol's definitely a noir. Yeah. The Price of Salt. <laughs> Which is funny because that's so much different than her other works. Well, that's the one she wrote under the pseudonym, right? It, like, right. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. I went from I went from Chandler to Hammett to Spillane to Highsmith to Stieg Larson. That was my progression in the uh, mid 2000s. Well, and this will come up again and again. And it has come up before. It came up with Jarrett during the 40s episode especially like noir is a film genre but it's one that is so informed by its literary roots and its literary counterparts uh-huh. like there's a reason a lot of these films are adaptations and i just think it, there's a reason why even the ones that aren't adaptations are very literary and so i do find this connection between like the literary and noir to be very interesting to finish this out with a couple more examples, you have some more Western-oriented noirs that are a lot more like blood simple in in their heritage. Uh, you've got Red Rock West, which is one of Nick Cage's better films <laughs> during the era where he was still making better films. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into my Nick Cage thing on the podcast here because it is not a popular theory, but Red Rock West is a great film, as is Lone Star, which Oh, buckle up if you haven't seen that one. You you really should. Um it's definitely a noir film. Matt, have you seen The Professional or Leon? I have not. And it's one of those films that at, at this point I like I have to work myself up to in a, in a, in a headspace to watch mm-hmm. it just with external other like context like circling around it. Um, like I only watched Rosemary's Baby for the first time earlier <laughs> this year, and like similarly, it's like can I do Chinatown? I don't like so it's one of those that again it's I have to like prepare myself for the, kind of the other stuff we've since learned about you know right. the creatives and the production and things like that but no i haven't seen it right and this of course is uh, the professional or leon as it's more properly called is little portman's big break yeah but it's also She's excellent in it <laughs> uh, but it's also a film made by as you pointed out the master of subtlety himself luke basson <laughs> I know Tessa just watched uh, The Fifth Element for a different project the other day. For like the dozenth time. I love that film. Uh, you know, there's Nikita as well. But I mean, this is somebody who does know genre, for better or for worse. But I'm still not sure I would call the professional noir. I, I just, I don't know. Tessa, what do you think? No, I wouldn't call it that at all. Um it belongs in a very specific tradition of criminal has young protege <laughs> reluctantly that he ends up making oh, sort of part of his in family. This one, Natalie Portman's the Padawan. <laughs> but I don't oh. but I don't think but I don't think it actually I don't know if there's like a name for the genre that it is, but it it, it has a very specific trope that it's following, but that trope is definitely not noir. It's almost more of a Western trope, right? Like, uh, yes. Yeah, I could see that. You know? Yeah, I mean, except for he's the reluctant mentor because he doesn't want to teach her. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it's 
it's interesting. True Grit, right? I was going to yeah. say, that still works, oh, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, True Grit. Yeah, yeah, I guess I forgot about that. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I think it probably has more in common with the Western than it does All right, be- noir. Before we get to Basic Instinct, I want to throw one more movie at you both. Is the Matrix film noir? No. <laughs> I think it maybe has some elements of noir, but I think those elements come to us through Wong Kar Wai's Fallen Angels. Which I didn't put on this list, but is very much a that's considered noir. to be noir. Yeah. yeah. But I mean hard boiled is also considered noir by some people if you want to keep going over to that. I think that's more of a continent. cop drama. But yeah. Fallen Angels is definitely noir. And I you can definitely see Wong Kar Wai's influence on the Wachowskis, but I would not call the Matrix noir personally. I don't know. Maybe Matt has a different opinion. <laughs> no, I, I think they're definite like Early on in the first film, I think it kind of is is playing with that a little bit more. And I think that they're using that language and, and familiarity that they're they're borrowing from and you know, bound kind of in some ways being a like not proof of concept for the matrix, but like proof of, you know, their competence as as, as directors, right? I think it grounds itself in kind of the familiarity of like noir dressings early on. And then I think as as neo falls further down the rabbit hole huh huh um it it abandons (laughs) those as it you know reveals more of what it what it is right so that's a very long complex fence sitting answer that's mostly a no i i do want to briefly pause here and say that going back to the 40s i i do want to make sure that we acknowledge here on monkey off my backlog that the Wachowski siblings, the Wachowski sisters, as it were, win the Orson Welles Lifetime Achievement Award for proof of concept and then never being allowed to do the thing ever again. Oh, look, Orson Welles, you're so cool. You can do really cool narratives on the radio. Let's have you make a movie. Oh, not like that. Years later, best movie of all time. But too late to actually be able to do anything in his career ever again. I feel like the Wachowskis have gotten the same treatment. Like if they prove their uh, competence and then make it one of the biggest blockbuster movies ever, you probably should just let them do what they want or don't. Speaking of people who get to do what they want or not. (laughs) Good segue. See what just happened there. But before, but enough about Paul Verhoeven. Uh, (laughs) What is an erotic thriller is it just noir where the sex happens on screen that's my question no and like i think <laughs> again like we're talking about with that's a really quick answer um, you've thought a lot about this like already <laughs> well that's what happens when you go into the notes early right um, good for me for doing competent podcasting this week <laughs> Um, I think they're like much like we're talking about like a crime film and noir having having crossover. I think that there definitely can be, but I think yeah, and like erotic thrillers like kind of that. It's like a movie we don't necessarily get as much anymore, but like you don't you don't need that central kind of noir themes or point of view to have like an erotic thriller. It's like in the same way to zig the other way it's like some people consider the science of the lambs a horror movie and i think it's more of a thriller like i can see like how it could evoke 
horror like I don't know that I, I said no right away, but I'm having a tough time backing it up. So See, I think I will, the I, will I think the erotic thriller is a separate genre from noir, insofar as we have separate genres, like you said, especially in the '90s. Yeah. But I do think it is like the daughter of noir. Like it does exist in this. Like I don't think the erotic thrillers of the '90s, even the ones that aren't explicitly noir, exist without noir as a genre. If that. If that makes any sense, if that lines up in any any sort of way, because I think that in order to have even the language of the erotic thriller, you need those early, like you said, those early films that are willing to look at the seediness and the the sort of underbelly of society. I think the difference is, is that most erotic thrillers aren't maybe as interested in commentary, like you said, as like the yeah. noir is. They're they're more interested in the psychosexual aspect of it. But it is looking at some of the same tropes just from a different perspective in that way. Um so you do get a lot of the like the femme yeah. fatale or you get a lot of the, you know, the sexual tension or is this person good or are they bad? You know, like that kind of thing. What, you know, what exactly is going on here? Nothing is as it seems. But it doesn't necessarily have all the trappings or vibes that would make something explicitly noir. But it does borrow a lot of that language from noir. I do want to point out that any movie made by Sharon Stone or Michael Douglas in the majority of the 90s is an erotic thriller. Michael Douglas, of course, is not just in Basic Instinct, but he's also in Fatal Attraction and Disclosure. Sharon Stone is in a movie, I believe, the next year called Sliver, which I know is an erotic thriller, and I know that because the UB40 version of Red Red Wine is from the soundtrack of that film, played the god-awful song on MTV, and because it was a music video, I've seen scenes from Sliver goddamn 50 times if I've seen it once. And, <laughs> you know, listen. I, but erotic thrillers were a big deal in the 90s. It's a genre that, Matt, as you pointed out, that that doesn't really exist for the most part anymore. It was hugely popular in the early 90s. And you can, it's no coincidence that Madonna makes her erotica turn in the early 90s. And that's not yeah. erotic thriller, but but there was that obsession with, with sex. And I'm sure somebody knows the reason for that better than I do. I was 10. <laughs> but well, how how much sorry just to to jump in there there there's as my my accent comes out with my, I, I my heard sword. that was great it was uh-huh. worth it, it, was worth it. <laughs> I wonder how much of that is then like the reaction to the right word conservative swing with like the Reagan era yeah right because again like like you're thinking about like Reagan and his ilk the dawn of neoliberalism basically mm-hmm. like ended the sexual revolution right and like also, too, there was, you know, the the fear of, you know, sex and, you know, with the mm. the AIDS crisis and, and, and things like that. So it, it, it's like, I think, as that generation that didn't get to experience that kind of like your like earlier Gen Xers, kind of like your, oops, as I hit my mic, your late kind of boomers who would have been coming of age right when we shifted rightward again. Globally, but mostly just specifically in like the Western world, Western's Anglosphere, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. 
then it was like that would be sex became countercultural again. Right. Right. Because sex previously 15 years before you had like people openly talking about how hetero flexibility was like super in and like GQ was like writing articles about this. And then Reagan happens and sex is shameful again. And this is a reaction to that. Well, and I also think I agree with you completely, Matt, but I also think that this especially basic instinct, which we're going to talk about is also doubling down on a lot of the stuff that was already in a lot of the 80s noir. So like, I mean, especially body double, which I definitely want to compare basic instinct to. Those themes are already there. Basic instinct is just taking it and to its logical conclusion, you know, but they're allowed to show more things, I think, as well. But it is interesting what you say about the way sex is depicted in these films, because it is very much sex is scary, right? And like it it has all these risks and all these strings and, you know, the femme fatale is back and, you know, all of these, uh, you know, it, it is interesting that sex is a lot more threatening in these films than perhaps it was in films of earlier decades where, I mean, I don't know why Barbarella's in my head. Maybe it's because we talked about Barbarella well, last I time you were on here, <laughs> but like sex is not scary in those films. Right. Um, but it is in the nineties. So maybe that is like the context that they're allowed to talk about sex. So there's a, there's a couple things here and we were just, uh, before we hopped on to record this today, we were just talking about, you know, why it seems that, that so many people from Generation X are conservative. And there's very there's two very good reasons for that. One, the more liberal faction, many of them, you know, died. And then the other the other bit is the the things that we remember from pop culture are countercultural. Mm-hmm. And that that doesn't just mean that the dominant culture was boomers. It was also people who were born after 65. Uh, you know, my uh, Alex P. Keaton from Family Ties, Michael J. Fox's main person he was known for 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 quite some time, is the epitome of that that young Reagan worshiping person. But you can very easily tie this erotic thriller back because it's sex for straight people, right? Right. And yes. so going back to that sex is scary thing, sex for gay people is, you know, is dying. No, it's AIDS and dying <laughs> oh, at this time yeah. period. It's yeah, not fun point, anymore. Yeah. So why should it be fun for the for the straights? Gotcha. And 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 this uh it's actually been pretty well documented recently about how Bill Clinton is probably the bigger signifier of this, even more than Reagan, possibly. Yeah. Because it, it's uh, it shows that when the so called left is this conservative about sex that that something's happened. And so that these erotic thrillers end up becoming the norm reinforcing sex is scary, right? Because one of the the big so you have some big erotic thrillers alongside Basic Instinct, Sleeping with the Enemy, which I don't really think that's an erotic thriller, but it's basically Julia Roberts escaping from an abusive relationship and living in perpetual danger. I don't know about that one being erotic thriller. What I do know is movies like Poison Ivy and The Crush, which have a very specific dynamic. It is the recreation of Lolita in a, in a through the erotic thriller lens. You have Fatal Attraction from a little bit earlier and Single White Female, which is they will... Bitches be crazy. I mean, that is that genre of erotic thriller. That's that does what that kind is. of feel like a lot of noir yeah. 
in general, too. It does. <laughs> but you have indecent proposal. And as I mentioned earlier, disclosure, which is the sexual harassment cautionary tale, sexual harassment, as it was called in the 90s. I don't know why they started pronouncing that word that way. <laughs> and, then, and then I will just point out that 1999's Eyes Wide Shut is the end of the year. Like, that was it. We're all done here. Thank you. And then he died. Well, depending on who you talk to, you never finished that movie or not. I, but that's the thing, right? Kubrick, Kubrick <laughs> shut that, just slammed the door on the erotic thriller by saying, that's it. There's no more to say. And even if there is, you can't do it anymore. Top that. I ruined lives. Real lives. <laughs> <laughs> the end of the erotic thriller is Tom Cruise not being able to deal with the fact that his wife has, has sexual yes. desires. Yes. Like, right? Like yes. it's, Yeah. I couldn't say this. I'll say it really fast. I couldn't say it on the podcast when we were when we were doing uh, family friendly clean, but we're not anymore. So I'm going to say it. So we went to go see a friend and I went to go see Eyes Wide Shut in the theater. Okay, this is the same friend we went to go see Blair Witch Project in the theater. By the way, we had nearly identical reactions to both films. But anyway, so we sat through Eyes Wide Shut and. She looked over at me at the end and she said, what the fuck was that? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, that's also basic instinct, though. No, this movie made sense. I was fine with this. Like, <laughs> this was nothing like Eyes Wide Shut. Eyes Wide, like, have you seen Eyes Wide Shut, Matt? Uh, it's one of I my I'm pretty sure movies. Matt could write a dissertation on Eyes Wide Shut. I have not seen Eyes Wide Shut, but both of you have, so for I sure. Not to go too far down the eyes wide shut thing, but like Emmett or poor Quentin on Twitter from the Song of Ice and Fire reread podcast, not a cast, um, has tweeted about how eyes wide shut is in conversation with The Shining and The Shining being Wendy trapped in this kind of masculine ideal and this like, you know, Jack's whole like thing and I'm going to write and, you know, being that and then eyes wide shut being tom cruise's doctor trapped in what he thinks is this like his wife's sex fantasy with someone else and how they're kind of in in concert with each other so yeah there's there's a lot going on eyes wide shot does for christmas lights what kubrick did for candles and barry linden wow those are that was a sentence that had like 17 different theses like circling and circling it's like an ouroboros of argument <laughs> it's like i don't an ouroboros of argument i don't know i th i like that um you know by the way i will just point out i'm gonna i'm gonna pivot here to verhoven here and you would not know it if you've listened to the first half hour of this episode but you would not know i have nearly <laughs> i have nearly nothing in the notes today even for a film that ostensibly I picked, which is Basic Instinct. So I'm just going to provide one more frame here, and then I'm going to let you two go nuts. So here's the thing. Let's talk about this, 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 this Paul Verhoeven guy. Which, and, and I want to make it very, very clear. We know a lot about this person as a director now in 2022. But I want you to remember that when Basic Instinct came out, this is the guy who made RoboCop and Total Recall. This is the sci-fi guy. As much as he's known for his sexual misadventures on film involving Saved by the Bell cast members, 
nuns, Nazis. <laughs> this is the RoboCop and Total Recall guy. And yeah, I know she had three boobs in that movie. I get it. That's fine. Yeah. But, but is this not just a complete left turn for this guy? Like, if you didn't know any better. Yes and no. I think, and again, this is like the benefit of hindsight and the rest of his right. like English language, like oeuvre. But I think more so than Total Recall, but I think you can compare something like Basic Instinct to Robocop, in which Verhoeven as a Dutch man of a certain age has, and also Jan de Bont shot Basic Instinct. So there, there we go. I think he sees America for like what it is with that outsider perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are, that's, that's the through line. I like, again, I can't, I can't make total recall fit except for, you know, Sharon Stone also being extremely attractive in total recall. Um, But I mean, when is Sharon Stone not Um, when she's trying to prove her identity? So she gets her Bumble account turned back on. But like, I think that's, that's the through line is that kind of commentary on American society. And I think, like one of the best bits in RoboCop about that is that the TV's always on. Like there's always a T like, you know what I mean? And things like that. I don't know. What do you think, Tessa? Well, I, I will say I haven't seen as much Verhoeven as you have. I have seen Total Recall and I love Starship Troopers, which I didn't actually know was by him for a long time. But having seen Basic Instincts now, I also think he is very invested in what sex is is and we can talk about that yeah. in context of basic instinct but i read this really I, I i wish i could tell you who it was it was someone on twitter sorry whoever this is this is not my idea but like somebody recently wrote this whole like uh article and it was linked on twitter about starship troopers and the scene where they're all completely naked in the shower together but it's not an erotic scene there it's like it's a scene where they're all talking about war and like wanting to go out and like these do these incredibly violent acts to this other species and the whole point of that scene is we're not horny for sex anymore we're horny for war and like it's supposed to be about like this desexualization of american cinema especially like the fact that it like is becoming less and less sexual and like we're starting to attach those types of pleasurable those pleasurable feelings we get from the gays to uh, acts of violence instead of uh, instead of sexual content. And so this fits for me perfectly with Basic Instinct. Like now that I've seen those three films, I can see them kind of in this continuum of, well, what if sex was this? Or what if sex was this? Like, yeah. or sex can be this too. And so I, I mean, I, I am going to see RoboCop. It's on my list. I'm going to write about it next year. But I am very interested in seeing the rest of his filmography because I want to know where else he takes this thesis. So I last thing I'm going to say, and then I'm going to turn it over to you guys, is that I want to... And he said there'd be no time travel. You just repeated yourself. Nah. Well, this is still part of the Verhoeven do, 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 thing. Do. So I, I think... <laughs> okay. I'm just teasing. I, so last thing is that next year, I am super excited. We were thinking about doing it uh, this in the last uh, well once we decided to do November, the Paul Verhoeven episode of Monkey Off My Backlog got delayed until 2023 I'll say that 
but I am very interested in in his movies. I've seen Total Recall a couple of times. Last time I fell asleep during it. It's safe to say it's not my favorite. But I've seen several. I Black Book, I referred to just a minute ago. But I'm really looking forward to doing an episode of this podcast where we talk about Benedetta and Elle and Showgirls and RoboCop. It's going to be a great time. And bonus, I think I have found a way to put Hollow Man into next year's. Uh, what's the thing we do in October, Tessa? No. Octo- that's done. That's done. I'm not saying it again. <laughs> you're, you're like, it's the October series. That's it. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of Verhoeven content coming on this podcast in 2023. But as I promised, I did not think Basic Instinct rose to the what the fuck level of Eyes Wide Shut. So I will just pose this question to both of you and you can just go nuts with your comments. What the hell? So it's not what the fuck, it's what the hell? Right. Okay. Big difference. It, there is a distinction, yeah. Matt, I'll let you go first because, I, again, I think you could probably write a dissertation on this. <laughs> so it's it's interesting that you draw the parallels to that idea of being horny for war and, like, the power fantasy within Starship Troopers and, like, fascism being the outlet for that. I think for Basic Instinct, what Verhoeven and then... Joe Esterhouse, the the screenwriter, who then they would team up shortly after for Showgirls, which is an interesting Rorschach test of a film. <laughs> <laughs> to to say it lightly, so much obviously fun. I think it's yeah, obviously I love it, but you know, I, if you don't, I I get it. But I'm also from the generation that has discovered it later and then reappraised it. For Verhoeven and Esterhouse in this movie, we're not yet horny for war. The power fantasy isn't about war. It's still violence, but that power and that violence is sex, right? And I think that this movie's also in relation to that a lot about identity, right? You have things of like trying to figure out who Catherine is. You have obviously, you know, I'm assuming audience, you've seen the film, but there's like that stuff with, with Beth and, you know, wanting to be Catherine and all of that. And then with Michael Douglas's Nick is he's trying to put on airs that he's not as big of a piece of shit as he actually is. And he tries very hard not to. And he's putting on these airs and, you know, he's obviously trying to look like he's recovered from the <laughs> accidental shooting, potential shooting of, of, of bystanders and all of that. And through the course of the film, Catherine knows who she is, and she, in quotes, seduces Nick to be himself. And there's that a certain freedom that he finds in that later on as he like starts acting out more and more, because he feels by his proximity to Catherine, knowing who she is, he can be his most authentic self. When we know who we are, when we know what the world is around us, when we live our most authentic lives, that I think a lot of times is when we're in our power. When we see the world for what it is, and then we can laugh, then we laugh at those around us who are forced to live within those norms and those structures. And I think the movie is commentating on that and identity, but it's making a direct equation between sex and power. And I think that's really contrasted with how with basically what is essentially not essentially what is sexual assault 
earlier on in the film especially within i've only seen the like unrated director's cut so i don't know if some of the the dialogue we're going to talk about when nick rapes beth is in the theatrical cut or not but then contrasted that with when nick has sex with Catherine later in the film right and the difference kind of downstream impacts of that and like nick has a very (laughs) a very strict a very heteronormative a very like you know closed off perspective of like sex and sexual dynamics and 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 sexual politics and things like that and so like it's it's all about power and who's topping and who's not yeah, I was actually curious if you'd seen the undirected or undirected, unrated. I <laughs> the unrated director's cut. That's the one I have. Okay, because yeah, that's I what we watched. And I, I actually looked it up because I was like, wait, what is going on here in this scene? And like in the unrated cut, you can actually hear Beth saying no during that scene. And apparently in the theatrical cut, you can't. Like it's played more like just like a rough sexual yeah. scene. But in the director's cut, it's very obvious that it's sexual assault in a lot of ways, even if, like, afterwards she doesn't necessarily play it like that. Well, and, like, that's interesting that the theatrical cut cuts around that. I wonder if that was, like, maybe, like, partially, like, a ratings thing or, or like, what the... Or that was a studio note or, or something. But, like, every time I watch this and I see that scene, what's stands out to me is it's like it's uncomfortable but because they have a previous history and like it ultimately is inter- it's like intimate partner violence right it's like sexual assault within like a relationship or like a former relationship but because of the movie it is i don't like at first i don't know if i'm supposed to infer that they've had a conversation previously and like is this a con- like a consensual non-consent thing is this just like how they have sex and then it's like then you get to the no and then there's that conversation later where she acknowledges that like that wasn't their like previous sex life and it's litter and that's where i think i go go back to and again i don't know if this is one of the most eloquent things about this film where like you know with its equation of sex and power and it you know rough sex turning into sexual assault or being sexual assault um without that that prior consent that's part of nick's power fantasy right this reminds me a lot of blood simple there is the 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 non-verbal thing is actually made verbal in blood simple that the very beginning where they're talking about what they don't want to talk about or if they have to talk about it and then they end up having sex. That is the number one lie that pop culture told me, a, a Generation X person who grew up in the 80s and 90s, was you don't talk about it. If you know you want to do it, you just know. Now, does that mean people weren't actually having consent discussions? I guess they probably were, but, you know, if you looked at pop culture, you'd never know that. This is, as I told Tessa, I said, my generation is one that had no idea about consent. We're never taught any of this. It was not a conversation at all. And I'll go a little bit farther and say how many people would be alive today not because of violence, but because of sexually transmitted diseases, if we had known that. And it, it, the conversation was, 
when you vibe, you vibe, and you ride that vibe, or it's over. And then, like, the implied entitlement, too, right? Where it's, like, you can, like, if you're feeling the vibe, and they're, like, not to invoke baby, it's cold outside discourse, but, like, the... (laughs) (laughs) Which, which, again, I think... Says, says something very different within its cultural context than I think a lot of, I would say, surface-level readings of that song that, you know, some, when someone rediscovers it every year. But that idea of, like, you can wear, like, it is your job as the initiator of sex within, like, heteronormativity to, like, wear down someone's re- resolve, even if they've, like, you know, they're not quite vibing enough or, or whatever, whatever. Well, it's right? supposed to be passion, so. right? That's what we're, we're told, yeah. is that if you really mm-hmm. want it and you can wear this other person down, it's supposed to be proof that you're passionate about them, yeah. which is obviously a lie. I do want to ask, though, is rape another trope of neo-noir because it's something that's hinted at in classic noir. This is the second film we've watched with an explicit rape scene. The other is Blue Velvet from the 80s. And I was thinking about this as I was watching it um, because it is a very uncomfortable scene. And it actually kind of reminds me of a scene in um, Blade Runner as well, but uh, which also has that element of is this consensual? Is it not consensual? He's definitely intimidating her, you know, in that scene. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. But like it's sort of hinted at this whole like sex and power and like those things go together in classic noir. But in the tradition of the 80s and 90s, when we're getting to neo-noir, like you said, it seems like it's becoming more textual, which is why we have these actual rape scenes in these films. Matt's thinking very, very intently. I don't know if it's like a specific trope, but I think it's it's something that is a really easy thing to reach for when you're talking about how like fucked up society is right where it's like when you're trying to make like in the case of basic instinct you're trying to make this like really make it clear that sex is power and later on in the film it's it's Catherine who air quotes fucks nick it's he thinks he's topping but he's he's bottoming and he's like this is the fuck of the century (laughs) and she's like it was an okay start and like to like show like that power dynamic so it's like how are you going to contrast that with well we'll have nick rape someone right like it i don't know i don't i don't think it's a necessary part of the genre but i do think i think it's always in the background though because the other two films we're going to talk about today while they don't have explicit rape scenes it's there it's part of that conversation. That's all I'm trying to say. It's not there. But the threat of sexual violence is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, no, I, I don't think rape is necessary, a necessary part of neo-noir, but sexual violence or the implication thereof is. If you look at, to quote, the band Bush and their song, <laughs> Everything Zen. There's no sex in your violence. I mean, the thing about the the 90s is really approaching these issues from a like out of the corner of your eye. You know, we're we are having better discussions about sexual violence in the 90s, but those discussions are weaponized. We're able to talk about domestic abuse intimate partner violence is still a way off from having nuanced discussions, but we're having a better time talking about 
the basic contours of abuse, but that gets weaponized in a very conservative, neoliberal way by, well, oh my God, Madonna, you went way too damn far. Like, you can't just talk about women enjoying sex. Like, we can't do that. That's not okay. So you have to balance her out with fatal attraction, disclosure. Disclosure, which is a story about a woman sexually harassing a man. Gasp. I didn't know you could do that. You know, and and you can even look at the music. You know, once you get as a response to grunge, you get the, uh, you know, you get the Lilith Fair feminist trope, which is as reductive as the grunge trope is. But, you know, different discussions of sex and intimacy. And then from that, you have the, the boy bands and, you know, Britney and Christina. And then it takes you out of the 90s. But... Notice in in those musical genres, there is no mature discussion of any of these issues. And these erotic thrillers work very well as films if you assume, if you already know that nuanced discussion, because then you're able to approach these films from a, from a, a, a neat place, which is kind of what I think, you know, both of you are doing. But... We weren't having that nuance in the, when these films were actually coming out. So they did mean something completely different, which is why Showgirls was seen as a piece of shit when it came out. But, you know, it's yeah. reinterpreted as a classic, which it very much is. I mean, come on. Anyway, that's a lot. I'm sorry. Well, oh, go ahead. To bring back Body Double, I think that this film... I'm not even going to say doubles down. I think it triples down on the audience as voyeur theme that we talked about yeah. last week with Ryan because, and I know you haven't listened to this episode yet, Matt, cause it's not out yet, but yeah. we talked a lot about voyeurism and how everything is porn in that movie. Like the whole point is that like, there's so many people watching each other and it's the same thing as porn and like all these things kind of get mixed together. This is taking that to its logical conclusion and I was really reminded about uh, Pat Cadigan, um, her book Sinners, which came out in 91, I think, 91 or 92. It was definitely before this, um, where she said, if you can't, f-, she says everything is porn. She says everything is porn in that book. And if you can't fuck it and it doesn't dance, eat it or throw it away. And it is, that is what this is. That is what this film is, is that everything is porn. But more importantly, like we're participating in this, right? We're we're watching it and we're watching it happen, but we are the vo- voyeurs. We are not, we're not watching other people watching each other, although there is some of that in this film. We are the watchers. We're the ones peeping through the window and seeing what is essentially softcore <laughs> porn in this film. Now, so now I'm just thinking about like Body Double and I'm looking forward to listening to the episode when it's out, but uh, as like, much of a pervert as Brian De Palma is. <laughs> um, he was a, a little more obvious at times in Body Double than Verhoeven was, as I'm thinking if there's that one shot during the murder with the drill and it's oh like, my. oh yeah, we very, talked very about that shot. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'll say after seeing Basic Instinct this week, which I did see for the first time, we have to talk about the actual killer before we move on. And so we'll do that in a minute. I was not spoiled on this movie. That, I think that's an impressive feat. But I will tell you, I appreciate all three movies from last week more now after having watched Basic Instinct. Oh, uh, from the yeah. 80s. You yeah. Think? I okay. mean, like, I, I thought Blood Simple was fine before. It's not like that movie increased in my estimation a lot. 
Wow, Body Double is a pretty good movie. You know, yeah, thinking I about it. no, I liked it fine, but like I'm I'm kind of seeing it open up a little bit more, and I think the same is true for Blue Velvet. I think I think what Verhoeven does in Basic Instinct contextualizes both of those movies, and I think Blood Simple a little bit too. Um, and maybe that's what noir in the '90s is 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 not so much building on a genre but it's invoking a genre a genre and giving you a better understanding of what it was maybe maybe we should just be a noir podcast maybe we should just be a noir podcast all the time (laughs) i do want to talk about Catherine because Catherine, to me is like the extreme end of the femme fatale character it's like this is the I keep using the term logical conclusion because I kind of feel like that's what Verhoeven is doing with the entire genre. Like, let's just take everything, dial it up to a 25. That is what this is. But like femme fatales before, especially ones that are dishonest or quote unquote psychotic, as much as I try not to diagnose people on podcasts like Bridget O'Shaughnessy from the Maltese Falcon, Phyllis from Double Indemnity or Ilsa from lady from Shanghai, like all of those characters have elements of Catherine. They're a lot better at hiding them, I think, um, because they're trying to use their femininity usually to make the main character their sap. Catherine, like you said, is perfectly aware of who she is and she doesn't hide it at all. Like she's just like, this is who I am, but I'm too smart to get caught at it. And because I'm so upfront about what I am, it's like her showing off who she is to Nick actually fools him into thinking that she isn't that because he thinks that there must be like layers to her, but it, but it's not true. Like that is just who she is. And I, I appreciate that in a character. I thought it was so interesting to compare her to previous femme fatales and see her as like this end point. She's a femme fatale for third wave feminism. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, my God. Is this because she's bisexual? Is that why you're saying that? (laughs) No. No, I, like... Oh, you brought up the bisexual thing. I don't even know what to say about that. No, okay, so I will say this about the bisexual thing. Is she really bisexual if the second she finds a real man, she says, bye No, no, you can't say that. That is biphobic. Well, that's what happens. Don't say that. That's That's not true. Um, So she... I this film was apparently protested at the time that it came out as being like bad bisexual representation. And I understand that point of view. And I but I have such dilemma with it because (laughs) every time I see a character like this, like the bisexual slut character who's evil, I understand that bisexuality here is being used as a shorthand for moral depravity. Like she'll just sleep with anybody. She's a sexual predator. Like she has no morals, like that kind of thing. But on the other hand, I really support bisexual sluts. So <laughs> like, I kind of, you know, like it's one of those things where I, I understand that it's a trope and I understand that it's supposed to be this like stand in for something about her as a character. But on the other hand, I'm just like, yeah, sure. Like do you do you like, Whatever just, you want. I, I, I can't. Honestly work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't get over the, the like, and is this Verhoeven? Is he the perpetrator of the bad bi behavior? Because Beth is also bisexual. And she's the one who's like, it never had, no, it was a mistake. 
which is the other bi-trope. Yeah, yeah, like the ex- I was just experimenting. Like I I'm I'm just a- I, I'm just asking questions. I'm just asking stuff. questions. No, 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 I mean, but seriously, it does seem like they're both it doesn't seem like they're both bisexual characters. They are both bisexual characters, but it both seems like they are well, I mean, they enact the two the two biphobic tropes, right? I mean, one character's one, one character's the other. It's very hard. To come off in an authentic way, right? And that might be because of the biphobia that's inherent. Well, but Paul Verhoeven, uh, but Paul Verhoeven's making the movie. Is he doing it, or are we seeing? I it? think it, that's probably Esterhaus's screenplay, to be honest. Because like I think Joe Esterhaus, who like again is comes from like broke into screenwriting in some of those like 80s erotic thrillers and like I, like was it jagged edge he one of them i remember him like it was he was the screenwriter um because i'm thinking going back to the erotic 80s series of you must remember miss that just happened i think it was jagged edge but maybe not yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna like yes it is in verhoven's movie and verhoven i think is as much as a tour theory is a thing i think verhoven definitely qualifies but yeah i'm gonna hang that on esterhouse probably possibly because I think Esther House is a weirdo reactionary now, like right-wing POS, so like I'll hang that on him. But yeah, I think Verhoeven probably is a little complacent, but like also I don't I don't know if the film is, and the screenplay is like actively using Catherine's sexuality as, as like a bi or like, you know, a pan or like, you know, kind of like identifying her sexuality beyond power. Right. I think that that it's like, I think we're approaching this and like, again, with the benefit of like 30 years later, examining it through a context and the tropes of that, that the film isn't film isn't considered with. It doesn't care what Catherine's sexuality is. It's just about power because sex is power. So what you're saying is, is that if in Starship Troopers, they're horny for war, Catherine is horny for power. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's the comparison there. And that's, yeah. Yep, the third wave, fem- and that's where I think you get the third wave femme fatale, right? Like, if I'm actually, like, not just making that joke, but actually trying to, like, construct an argument around it, I think that's where, cognizant or not, um, you're getting some of those more, like, 90s third wave feminism sort of sort of vibes a little bit there. Probably totally accidental, because, again, Joe Esterhaus kind of sucks. But, <laughs> you know. I will say that I love the dialogue where he's like, oh, I can play her game. And both of us at the same time when he said that, we're like, no, you can't. You like cannot play. Yeah. You cannot play her game yeah. even a little bit. Well, like, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times that Starship Troopers is very, you know, that that military element to it. I mean, this is the police. I mean, this oh, yeah, is just, I mean, true. this is very much you. Yeah. W- what you're saying about Starship Troopers, I think, is in evidence in this because, yeah. you know, she she enjoys manipulating people with whom she has sex. She enjoys manipulating her subjects of her books. She enjoys the idea of manipulation on a clinical level as a psychologist. She enjoys getting away with murder doesn't matter if she did it or not she still that is to me that's the genius of this character did she do the murder probably not that one but But. she wanted to make them think she did it so she could get away with it that is next level right there that just the glee like of course i passed the the lie detector test because i didn't do it 
but you're convinced I did. So now you have to come up with a, a, a rationale for how I managed to beat the lie detector test. Boy, oh boy, did I just make your life difficult. And that's power. I, I think that's fascinating. I just had a revelation. Is she Hannibal? Like from the show, like not necessarily Silence of the Lambs, like from the show, like the psychologist who's like manipulating people into doing well, just things. Just remember for him. that this, we've already mentioned it. This decade ends with Kaiser Soze. Yeah. We are obsessed in the 90s with this, with the, the, the outsmarting. You know, the, the villain who is very much, in fact, smarter than you, right? Gone is the Blofeld, the Bond villain who always gets outsmarted. These are villains who are smarter than you are and always will be. Because their systems are closing around yes. us. So like, the again, talking about like the power fantasy, it's being, it's like, it is being like, that Hannibal or that Catherine where it's like, we are, we are above these systems. We are free of it. We are like looking down on the rat race. We, we have like reached this like end point where we have freed ourselves from. Yeah. Right. And like the matrix is even a little bit about that too. Like, I think it's more specific about like identity than it, but like, you know, kind of outside that like the systems that are put upon us. Right. And the, definitions of identity and you know et cetera, et cetera. all right i know we could talk about this that's film. our basic instinct we could talk about this for a whole nother hour or more but before we move on i do have to bring this up one more time can we talk about the actual person who's the villain of the film allegedly oh, probably beth? yeah what do you mean oh beth well i don't think she's the real villain of the film but she's but the guy. She's the, one, she's the fall monk, person. She's the guy. <laughs> I probably, do love. What I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Matt. No, I was going to say like the like Jeannie Triplehorn also rules in this oh movie. Oh my God. And again, I, I understand Jeannie Triplehorn when I, when, now. <laughs> yeah. And like before I saw it, I like obviously, you know, the, you know, Catherine Chamel, you know, that the interrogation scene, like that is burned in pop culture. Like you're expecting a little bit of that going in. And like, I didn't know about Beth. Beth kind of blew me away. But I also think, too, there's this... Have you both seen Mad Men? I don't remember. Yes. yes. So there's that one ad campaign early on where it's like, are you a Jackie or are you a Marilyn? That's the that's the ad that they're doing to sell bras or whatever, right? It's like the two like role models of femininity at the time in the early 60s. Are you Marilyn Monroe? Are you, are you Jackie Kennedy? And they're different vibes. Casting a brunette as Beth having a blonde as Catherine. Right. And I, I think it's, it's playing on some of those internalized stereotypes of like the bookish brunette versus like the sexy mm-hmm. blonde and et cetera, et cetera. I have to say two things before we wrap up our discussion of this one is, and I didn't realize this until you mentioned fatal attraction. I thought this film was fatal attraction. No bunnies were harmed time. in the, filming of this movie like no like seriously i i mean i i didn't realize it till you mentioned it but that is what i for the longest time thought this film was fatal attraction like i had those two films like confused in my head and so when i watched this i was like oh this isn't what i expected it to be but also i just love that at the end of the film she was going to kill him with an ice pick if he insisted on children the only thing I, that stops her from killing him with an ice pick is him saying oh well we don't have to have the rugrats if you don't want to and I like that that threat is just constantly there. Like, yeah, sure, Beth 
may have been the real villain, may have not been the real villain. We don't really get a whole lot of closure on that, but we still have that threat of Catherine in the background. And like, Whomst I do among fully us believe hasn't been there though. What? Whomst among us hasn't been there. Well, I I believe that she will kill him eventually. Like yeah, I feel like that is okay the threat of the film. Like it'll be fine. maybe not today, but tomorrow maybe. Maybe not tomorrow, but soon. Yeah. And because he'll be dead for the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> But for now, it's the beginning of a beautiful friendship, Tessa. Yeah. By the way, I don't know. Matt, have you seen Big Love? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, yep. you know, every, as time goes by, and I've seen the whole show, but the casting of Gene Triplehorn, Chloe Sevigny, and Jennifer Goodwin as the sister wives becomes more and more brilliant with each passing year. Yeah. Yeah. What a show that shouldn't have been good, but was. <laughs> sometimes kind of went off the rails there at the end but anyway now I just want to do an erotic thriller episode I mean we should at some point because now we need to watch Fatal Attraction right which again I forgot was a film (laughs) I mean unfaithful to keep your uh, De Palma is a perv thing going right Uh, who's unfaithful Who's is that? Gear uh, isn't that? Um, Rebecca Rom? No, it's Rebecca Romaine and is it Gear? I, he did an erotic thriller or two because he's Richard Gear, but it is Richard. Hey, Gere. Yeah, yeah, I right. did it, and it's not to Paul Adrian line. I bespoke. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you were a leading actor of a certain je ne sais quoi, you did an erotic thriller. Then I say Michael well, Douglas. <laughs> I don't know French. I don't know if I should have said Michael Douglas say quoi. I don't really know how that works. Sorry. Well, and then another, another, we could have mentioned it earlier, but like another 80s movie that straddles that erotic thriller noir line is, um, speaking of Richard Gere, is American Gigolo, right? Yes. Like, which, which, you know, is a contender for one of the best soundtrack songs ever in the history of ever. Again, I know we want to move on to our our other movies, but Trader in that movie is both doing like a vibe, like a movie on vibes, and it comes really anti vibes. Like half, it just, oh, yeah, love American Gigolo. Anyways, <sighs> well, you guys are gonna stop having me should, on. No, I'm no, like, too long. You, like you are, no, no, no. You are okay. not even the longest here's, we've had on. Here's what in we're the gonna do next months. time we do straight week. <laughs> We'll have you on and we'll do a half hour episode. We'll just get it straight done. Week. Just like straight people. What? I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> that will not be in there. <laughs> I don't think any of us are, are able to do Woo! anything like straight people, uh, but you know. Straight people are I was, not okay. I was hanging out. I was like hanging out with a friend where it's kind of a dick, kind of not a dick. That weird in between grounds where like, you know. I just like, told you that was my busy. entire growing up. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've made that clear. And I said something. I was like, oh, I think I was talking about like when I thought I was was straight or trying to like you know was in denial of myself or whatever. And then they basically said, Matt, I've known that about you the entire time we've hung out. You, I don't think you've said a straight thing in your in the whole time we've hung out. <laughs> like, That's a great compliment Man. in my book. It was it was very affirming. Yeah, if I had a dollar for every time somebody asked me if I was gay or if I was a lesbian trapped in a man's body, I could at least buy a couple movie tickets. <laughs> I mean, like, I wouldn't be rich, but you know, I could do something with it. 
I, I think it's kind of interesting to how in basic instinct we have that sex is power and it very much enforces like that tops and bottoms. Like there's that line of like man to man with the, uh, with the, the sapphic and the, the nineties leather jacket in that to contrast that with devil in a blue dress, which I think gives us lots of flavors of like traditional masculinity. Yes. So I, I, I think it's very interesting. And this was something I was thinking about earlier when uh, this was something that was brought up earlier that I thought was really interesting. But now that, you know, these films basically become softcore porn, which is the diametric opposite of what a Hollywood code picture is, right? Mm-hmm. But these mm-hmm. films are doing as much or possibly even more to reify heterosexual conservative values. Like, we're going to show you the sex, but by the end of it, you're going to know that being straight is the best way to be. And you better be careful. Missionary only or bad shit will happen. (laughs) Right? I mean, Basic Instinct seems to do a better job of that than, you know, the big sleep. We're double indemnity. I don't know. Tell me I'm wrong. Oh, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. You're clearly right. Okay. Well, Devil in a Blue Dress feels, to me, like I think both of you see it differently, which is why I'm interested, again, to hear you guys talk about it. To me, it feels like a very anachronistic film. Like it's a it's a throwback. It's not, uh, you yeah. know, where Verhoeven moves it forward. And I think that Soderbergh isn't necessarily moving it forward so much as remixing it. But this seems yeah. like a throwback to me. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. Okay. But Frank Carl Franklin, who directed Devil in a Blue Dress, is doing something very different with his use of the throwback. Um I, I really I should attribute this to Walter Mosley, who wrote the book that this film is based on. But basically I I came up I had never heard of this film before a couple of years ago. Actually last year. Feels like a couple of years ago. But last year I was listening to a November-themed episode uh, in in November of Pop Culture Happy Hour with Aisha Harris and Maria Gates. And so they were talking about a lot of their favorite noir films that they were watching that November. And this film came up and they specifically discussed the idea that noir in many ways is a white genre. It is about white people and white people problems in a lot of ways but that this film is really one of the first films to explore how those themes, how that classic noir setup would look with a primarily black POV. And of course, this is not, like I just said, this is not unique to the film necessarily because it is based on a book. It's based on a book series. And I did look up the plot of the book. I've never read it, but it seems like a pretty faithful adaptation of Walter Mosley's novel. Basically, the premise of this film is that Ezekiel Easy Rollins is a down-on-his-luck laborer who takes a job from a PI looking for a missing woman, and he's drawn into this, like, web of lies, and he might be getting set up for murder. There's, like, all of these different things going on. What I find this interesting is that, like you said, it does have this throwback sensibility in the sense that, you know, it is set in the 40s. It does have this, you know, return of the voiceover and the the hard-boiled sort of attitude towards these things. It has the classic setup of the femme fatale and, you know, you're searching for her and she might not be what she seems. 
It's also an origin story um, because Walter Mosley wrote a whole series of books about this character as a PI. I find it very funny that Mouse in those books is his muscle. Like he always calls in Mouse when he needs something physical done, which I definitely want to talk about Mouse in this. But it's very much in that tradition of Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler. But what I think this is doing by throwing it back by intentionally engaging in this, but with this black POV, is that it is completely recontextualizing what these tropes actually mean. And what I mean by that is that while this is set in LA, like a lot of noir films are, it is set in a very different kind of LA. And it is set in an LA where segregation exists, which isn't something talked about in classic noir films. the people in those noir films, it's like this film is trying to say those people only thought they were on the margins. Like this is actually what the margins look like there. And we talked about before, especially in the f- episode with Jarrett about how film noir often deals with paranoia and this idea of like being afraid that things aren't what they're see- they seem or that you're being watched or that you're being followed or that someone's going to betray you. But in this film, it's not even paranoia because paranoia is only possible if it isn't true. And the idea that the fear here is fear of the cops. It's fear of mobs, right? There's this incredibly tense scene in the middle of it where this white woman just like walks up and starts talking to him. And you know, you can see on his face the whole time where he's just like, lady, leave me alone. Like you, I am going to get like mobbed if you keep talking to me like this. And like, you know, he, this fear comes up so many times that it's just constantly in the background of this film. And it just, to me, it just completely inverts that paranoia where it's like, you thought you were paranoid about life. Let me tell you what it actually looks like to walk through, like being afraid of everything. Um, yeah. I'm curious to know what you thought of this, this film, Matt, in that context. Yeah, this is my first time seeing it as as well. Although it wasn't my my contribution to the monkey, it was one of one of the two monkeys of which I got off my backlog this week. Um, and watching them, but I I think you're exactly right on where it's like this is a very straight classic noir. It has all of the fixtures it has all of the tropes we have the very literary voiceover narration to like give that kind of interiority kind of even similar to like you know blade runner as like a techno noir sort of thing and the, the theatrical kind of of that too like double indemnity this starts a little bit like in media res and then we get kind of those those flashbacks and things like that and like you know jumping jumping around a bit like that too that gets us kind of caught up to what's what's happened before and and, and things like that what gets us caught up to to you know where easy is and, and what's what's um led him kind of to this this path it deals with the corrupt broken world but again instead of it being either imagined or real like impressions of marginalized those marginalized insurance salesmen right (laughs) um it it actually deals with actual marginalization and racialization and then the idea of the segregated la and having your 40s post-war noir story which again as a lot of them are in california california being this post-war kind of promised land the idea of searching for zion and finding babylon right kind of you know, gross, corrupt LA, um, I think works really, really well. And I just, I want to know more about the Genesis. And I, I tried, did some quick 
quick googling and couldn't find it franklin working on like adapting this and kind of the the behind the scenes production machinations because this is a a jonathan demi and his producing partner gary gutsman produced film the director of photography was tak fujimoto who was demi's dop shot silence of the lambs lambs shot the silence of the lambs among you know several of demi's other works so yeah i'm just curious to like what that level is there and where it's it's like demi being very much of a white liberal of a certain age who also like kind of appropriates in something like something wild you know kind of a (laughs) the pan-african you know aesthetic but then also like i don't know but also like being a well-meaning white liberal i just i want to know more about the kind of the behind the scenes thing of like you know him setting up another filmmaker a black filmmaker so i was trying to think up think about where to interject this and i think i will here because the thing that sticks out to me about this film is how deep this cast is yeah with black actors who are just i mean denzel is clearly denzel and i would challenge he was on such a run here like this is like peak denzel whoever wants to take anything from Denzel is going to have to come through like me and everybody else. Right. I will challenge you to a duel. If you don't think Denzel is awesome. I I do think interestingly that the white actor who is at the, the top of the cast listing is self-destructive hero of the nineties, Tom Sizemore, who actually just obliterated his career like time after time after time. You have Cheadle, who's going to become Don Cheadle. But but I just want to point out, a little bit down the list, okay? You have Lisa Nicole Carson, who plays Coretta. She's Carla from ER. She is a, a prominent recurring actor in the first several se- uh, seasons of ER. You have, uh, as, as uh, Junior, you have David Fenteno, who is... Tessa's favorite background actors on The Good Wife and The Good Fight. He is a judge. It's awesome. There's going to be another Good Fight reference in this segment. But but here's the one that will actually blow your damn mind, Tessa. Okay. Your mind is about to get blown. All right. Just two. Is it Barry Shabaka Hen- Henley? No, it's L. Scott Caldwell, who plays Hattie. L. Scott Cal- Caldwell, we saw earlier this week. She is Poole, Tommy Lee Jones's sassy underling on The Fugitive. Oh, But okay. Tessa, she's also Rose on Lost. That's okay. All right. All right. Everything's connected. I am oh, my God. No, now. it's hilarious. Just It's great. But all these actors that, that you know from this or that television show, you know, who are characters that it's very easy. I mean, the thing about the Kings is they have these very good actors playing these judges and you want to spend more time with these people. You know, Carla's role on, you know, working with uh, Eric LaSalle, uh, his character Benton on ER, those are, you know, that's a very good, meaty role. You immediately love uh, the character on The Fugitive, Tessa, I know she was your favorite. But Why Rose don't you ever yell also, at her? But Rose is such an endearing character, too. Yeah, I, I love mean, Rose. just thinking about these actors who have made this step 
to a a major motion picture and by all right should have continued to have a very high profile but but they're people we know mostly from these supporting roles or from these television roles just the the quality of work that's put in somebody knew what they were doing when they put this film together so 5 minutes later to answer your question Matt is to say that maybe but somebody brought some genuine understanding and knowledge to this. And it probably wasn't Demi, but somebody did. I mean, I think it was yeah. Carl Franklin, who is also a television yeah. director. But that's the point. You know, like, yeah. it, it, this is the best possible version of that, perhaps, right? Where you make it happen, then you get out of the way. Yeah, I, I think, I want to talk about casting a little bit too, especially when it comes to Jennifer Beals, who... Flash dances Jennifer Beals. Yes. Uh, yes. So... Her character is so she interesting is a maniac. In this because she plays a character that is the femme fatale um, who is, you know, existing within this, this classic role. She looks like a classic femme fatale. She, you know, she is the, the devil in a blue dress, you know, type of. She's channeling Stan. Yes. Here, like so well, like especially in that initial scene in the hotel. Like... Yes, absolutely. And she, I do think it's funny just as a side note that this is the second noir film we've watched for this podcast where the titular character is wearing a blue dress. Like that's like part of the, of the title. I think that's great. Cause blue velvet is of course the first one. <laughs> Wait, Had to say what it. did she wear in that movie? <laughs> she wore blue velvet, Sam. Oh, uh, is that why they called it that? <laughs> oh, I didn't know. But, Jennifer Beals, Miss Molly. <laughs> Jennifer Beals, while obviously being an excellent actor, she is perfectly cast for this role as well, just demographically, because it, the big revelation about her character is that she is actually biracial, that she is someone who has a Creole mother and a white father, and she is passing as white for most of the film. And the tension in the film comes that her fiance found out that she is passing. And that she is, um, you know, African-American. She is black. And it feels very ahead of its time that Jennifer Beals is also, her father was African-American. And it feels, it just, unfortunately, it feels ahead of its time because I feel like most directors in the 90s would have just cast a white woman to play this role. And it feels very much like the attention to detail of Carl Franklin to say no, like, or whoever's casting director is to say like, no, we actually want this person who has this history to come play this character. I mean, this was the same time that the major studios were pitching Harriet Tubman to be played by Julia Roberts in blackface. Like that is where we are culturally at this point. I could have lived my whole life without knowing that I know. That, that was happened. not something I ever needed to know. But it just really shows that you should always hire black directors to tell these stories because they are going to find the people who are going to get this right. And Jennifer Beals, when talking about her heritage, you know, in, in conversation with people before, has said that it always made her feel like she was living on the margins, even though she does pass as white. She says, I've always lived sort of on the outside, which fits in so nicely with the fil- themes of this film. Because as I was telling Sam earlier, while I was watching this, the fact that this is called Devil in a Blue Dress, and which seems like a very noir title like it, it's very much that noir sensibility but I kept asking myself who is the devil in the blue dress because she doesn't double cross easy right she doesn't I kept thinking like she was going to end up being a Catherine Trammell or a Phyllis you know from double indemnity but she doesn't 
And then I realized the reason she's the devil in the blue dress is because she's only evil if you're looking at it from a white perspective. Like if your biggest fear is miscegenation, then she is the devil, right? Because she is the threat to white society that somehow you're going to get black genes intertwined with whiteness, right? That she's going to be able to take in some unsuspecting white man. And so it is very interesting to me that there is sort of that reversal of she's evil, but not to easy. Like she's only evil if you're looking at it from a certain point of view. So as I was watching this for the first time and you get the the first meeting between Denzel and 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 Jennifer in the the whites only hotel that the the bellboy sneaks easy into and knowing metatextually that Jennifer Beals was biracial I'm like oh and this is a whites only hotel I was like this is an interesting kind of you know meta commentary later that I I am sure Carl Franklin is aware of and is is intentional right turns out it's not meta as as you explained it's literally text in the film but as you talk about like Beale's like experience as being a biracial actor, with Flashdance being her like big break in a starring role and like part of that, you know, <laughs> erotic 80s movement, none of the press advertised or admitted or brought up Jennifer Beale's race. I didn't know it before this film. Like I actually yeah. did not know that she was biracial before this film. And I wonder how many people who watched it know that. So when you're talking about colorism and passing and everything else, it's like that. It like, yeah, it's. I think on face value, because this is such a straight noir, I think it might be possible for someone, especially like a non-black person, to who is just like, oh, this is Denzel noir movie, to like watch it and like, oh, that was fine, like you know, because it is so like classic noir but once you start digging in below the surface and it's something that i think through the lens of neo-noir and the 90s and again not being where we want to be culturally then or now there's a lot more going on here than i think is at face value and i think that's what makes noir great and especially a noir like this there's this thing that's established in American culture. I'm not saying it doesn't happen anywhere else, but it is a hallmark of American culture where a black person will create something and then a white person will become famous for it. The title, Devil in a Blue Dress, is from a song called Devil with a Blue Dress On or Devil with the Blue Dress, which is about a femme fatale with a blue dress. Would you be surprised to know that the song, popularized by Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, number four, that was, it's actually when Mitch Ryder recorded it, he mashed it up. It's a medley, or what we would now call a mashup, of Devil with a Blue Dress On and Good Golly Miss Molly, which of course, you know, Little Richard. Would it surprise you to know that the original song was written by Shorty Long and William Mickey Stevenson, who are, you guessed it, black musicians? I'm really glad you brought this up, actually, because I, I think I'm here for you. I think this movie is also trying to say something about noir music. Yep. Especially jazz. Because in a lot of classic 40s noir, you do get like the jazz singer or you get like 
the femme fatale will sing, especially in Lauren Bacall movies, because she has such a great voice. You often see her like singing with a band and Blue Velvet. We see the same thing, like with the the white woman singing with the band. Right. I like how this film is reclaiming that music and basically being like, no, no, no. It belongs with us. It belongs in this part of town. It belongs in this type of setting. You know, you see all of these black musicians um you know who are playing in the in the speak is it a speakeasy it's definitely an illicit bar um at the top of this grocery store and to me there is a lot in this movie about reclaiming noir and saying you got some of these ideas from us right you got some of these aesthetics from us you got this music from us while it's still you know playing within those rules that we've seen with these more white movies from the 40s we have to talk about Don Cheadle. Do we gotta? We have Tessa? to. Do we gotta talk about? Because, Why don't we? Can we just save him for the next segment? Uh, yeah, we watched two John <laughs> Cheadle films, and and the characters are kind of similar. Although I prefer this one, Mouse steals every scene that he's in. Like I love Denzel, and I think he's doing good work in this. But Don Cheadle and his character, and just kind of this like. I can't even describe this because like if Denzel's doing the hard boiled detective, Don Cheadle's doing Peter Laurie, if I you, guess. If you'd wanted me to not kill him, you shouldn't have left him with me. Yeah. I mean, that's on him. Whatever at that, point. that is. Like, uh, you know, I don't know where John Cheadle was in his career at this point, but like he did get a lot of praise for this role. And I think rightly so, because he provides this like very interesting counterbalance to Denzel's character. And like I said, this is a character who's a reoccurring character in the books. Um, Easy often calls him in like when he gets into a tough situation where he needs like physical backup. And so I, I think that that relationship is also very interesting, too, because we get that line at the end where he's like, you know, if you have a friend who does bad things, I mean, really bad things, like, should you still be friends with him? And that's his relationship with Mouse. What did you all think about Mouse as a character? I mean, I really enjoyed him. I, for the record, with Don Cheadle, I did not see Boogie Nights until a few years after it came out. So I didn't really become aware of Don Cheadle until out of sight. But then I think when most people began to really catch on to him was the next Soderbergh film, which was Traffic, uh, which was the not bad version of Crash, which Don Cheadle was also in. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, I think that the, to, to me, this is an early Don Cheadle because to me, I, I know him as a early 2000s coming to prominence actor. That, that's what I think. I think this is early Don Cheadle getting to do things. He doesn't really get to do as much later in his career because I think he becomes really known as a, as a heavy dramatic actor. Thanks again to Traffic, Crash. He has a star turn on ER a little bit later on. Uh, you can't underestimate everyone the power was on ER. Like that's not surprising to un- me. Iron Man Two, or, <laughs> right? Well, then he becomes a, then he starts cashing checks. He he does the show uh, House of Lies with um, with Veronica Mars and I think Jean Ralphio's in that too. That that may be just me thinking. I know Kristen Bell's in it, uh, and then he signs on to be Rhodey. But like he is a very heavy dramatic actor in the two thousands. He's that, having so much fun decade. in this role. Yeah, which is which makes it really fun to see. Yeah, I mean it's 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 the very opposite of what he's doing as Rhodey. In Marvel, he's not cashing a check. He's having a good time. 
I think that he fits into your different flavors of masculinity concept, Matt. Yeah, and I, I like I'm not I am cognizant of not being the the best voice um in which to like talk about this specifically too, but like I think as this film examines masculinity and different flavors, it also has a specific interest into like the different pathways of black masculinity specifically and the ways in which it can be formed when, when you are like when the communities are segregated and marginalized and like need to support itself because the systems are in play that are in place don't protect them and it's like quite the opposite right so and not just not protecting them like actively pushing them out and actively like they're trying to they're trying to get denzel out of that house they're trying to like you know there's a scene where like a black woman and her family are like we're going back to texas because we can't live here anymore you know like there's this active sense of like being pushed out they're on the margins and they're and they're continuing to be pushed further and further to the margins that's so. the whole central conflict of the film, right? Right. That somebody like Easy should not be a homeowner. Right. That is not yeah. correct. Yeah. You know, and he makes he makes that very, very clear several times throughout the film. Like, this is why he will literally kill a man in order to pay his mortgage if he has to. Right. There is nothing I don't think he would have I don't he makes it very clear at the beginning of the film. He'll do anything to be able to pay that mortgage because it is something bigger than just a mortgage. Right. And I also appreciate because you do see in the classic, you know, 40s noir films, there's a lot of talk about World War II. I mean, noir is very much like a post-war genre. And so there's a lot of like in the war, you know, like that kind of thing. But like that, there's a lot of that here, but it means something very different um, because when, you know, the the white PI is like, oh, you fought in the war, you know, like they fought in different wars, right? They, they It's it's very different for a black person uh, who fought in World War II than it is for a white person. They There was different attitudes towards black soldiers versus white soldiers. Uh, they had different postings, right? Um, there was a lot of segregation even in the army at that point. So it, it is interesting that even like little tropes, like that little bitty, like, throwaway lines almost have more meaning in this film than you would almost associate it with in the forties. By the way, I just want to say really quickly that Don Cheadle was in hotel Rwanda the same year. He was in crash. Yeah. The same year. Same year. Boy, those movies have aged well. So I, I have to say this because I found out about this earlier this morning and then we can move on to Elmore Leonard Uh, because this has both, both two, two very, Things that are very near and dear to my heart, both Star Trek associations and the Good Fight associations. So Walter Mosley, who wrote this series of books, also was part of writers' rooms for several television series, including Snowfall, which I know Sam mm-hmm. really enjoys. He was hired by Alex Kurtzman to be in the writers' room for the third season of Star Trek Discovery, which... I have not seen, but I love Star Trek, and I'm very excited to watch Star Trek Discovery. However, he quit after three weeks. I I remember this Yeah, he quit after three weeks. And the story I'm about to tell you, the reason it has a a connection with the good fight, and Sam will immediately recognize it once I start telling the story, is because they do this as a storyline on the good fight with uh, Delroy Lindo's character. Like, it's this exact story, and I had no idea it was a real story until I read this. So... 
mostly worked on the series for three weeks, was notified by human resources at CBS of a complaint made against him by another member of the writer's room for his use oh, of the N-word. He was the guy? Yeah. I didn't know that. It was a real thing that happened. Had oh, no idea. I knew idea. it was a real thing. Yeah. Uh, so he was telling a story about his experience with a police officer <laughs> who had used the slur. And CBS was like, this is usually a fireable offense, but we're not going to fire you. Just don't use the word again. So he quit, didn't tell Kurtzman or uh, Paradise about this, but wrote an op-ed about it for the New York Times. And so, like, I bring this up because that episode of The Good Fight is really good. Um, and it talks a lot about... it's got about, your favorite scene from the whole series. It's got my favorite scene in the whole series um, involving... It involves uh, sensitivity training and how like dumb that is um, for certain in certain contexts. <laughs> Maybe he just likes watermelon. No, he doesn't. Well, then he's a racist. Um, so like it's it's a great little story. I mean, I I feel horrible for Walter Mosley being in that situation, and obviously like it says a lot about the corporateness of shows like Star Trek Discovery that you can try to talk about black issues on those shows and yet still get like dinged by the parent company uh anyway well i think that's interesting that you mentioned that he also worked on snowfall yes snowfall's great if if you don't know anything about that show it's it's the last major project that john singleton created before he died and it is a fictionalized retelling of what has been called the crack cocaine epidemic you know getting into the I'm not going to put the word conspiracy in front of it. I'll just say theory that that this was a purposeful incursion, you know, of of this drug onto the streets of of L.A. and elsewhere that had a lot to do with CIA policy uh, in Central and South America. And and Singleton is trying to, on a major cable outlet, trying to tell this story. And it's fascinating that he was able to do that. That's just a testament to what John Singleton had um, been able to do by the end of his life. So it's interesting hearing that it's the same same guy. Involved. Same guy. Yeah, same guy. It, it is uh-huh. interesting, especially because, and this is the last thing I'll say, is that you, you pointed out that all of these actors had all of these like different roots and yes. different things. And it's just interesting to see this film as being like a a place where all these people got to play with each other before going into these important other roles. Well, I I don't have a problem with the auteur theory like a lot of people do. I think it's 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 I think the problem is people see it as the be all end all. Like Verhoeven yeah. is not yeah, the yeah. singular author of Basic Instinct. Matt has made that clear. But you can definitely look at Verhoeven's filmography and see some themes yeah. that are important to that person that would not exist had that person not directed this film, the film before it, and the film after it. It's a case where both things can be true. And you can kind of see this this interconnected web of people who bring their experience and their talent as actors, writers, directors to multiple projects, and those projects inform each other. I don't think there's any conflict there between those two things. Speaking of which, <laughs> Elmore Leonard, one of the the, I would, you know, I would say that Elmore Leonard is the singular voice in in crime fiction in I, I would say between the eighties, the nineties, and the two thousands. Like the he is Chandler. He is Hammett. He is Highsmith. 
He is he is that for a new generation. And what's really interesting, Elmore Leonard wrote westerns too. This doesn't surprise me based why, on why, I mean, what but, I've seen. Well, I mean, but that's the thing. I, that's why I said at the top, Matt, when you brought up that that thing that really seems to unite the two. I was I was happy to think of it that way because I know there's a connection. I well, mean, but I it's, mean, it's nice to hear. If it. you think of them as like two frameworks for the Amer- yeah. the quote unquote American experience, and the fact that they overlap in a lot of areas, yeah. it makes total sense that they would work well together. Okay, so who is Elmore Leonard? Well, let me tell you. Out of dozens of of novels and short stories, let me just highlight a few. In 1990, he publishes Get Shorty, which is adapted in 1995 with Gene Hackman, Rene Russo, John Travolta, Danny DeVito, Delroy Lindo. My fave. And Tony Soprano himself, James Gandolfini. John Travolta plays the main character, Chili Palmer. He's a mobster. We'll come back to that in a minute. Two years later, in 1992, he publishes Rum Punch, which you probably haven't heard of, except you have. It's Jackie Brown, the 1997 Quentin Tarantino film. A year after Rum Punch, he publishes Pronto, which you probably also haven't heard of, but you might have heard of the character, the U.S. Marshal in it, Raylan Givens. Timothy Oliphant in Justified, the 2010 and onward series. Three years later, he publishes the novel Out of Sight, which is the introduction of one of my favorite pop culture characters, Karen Sisko. In this film, which we're about to talk about, Matt, this is all your fault for bringing this for bringing Elmer Le- Elmore Leonard into it. It's all your fault. Now we all have to suffer because you guys need to feel my pain because in 2003... ABC uh, greenlit a television show based on the character of Karen Sisko. We get rid of Jenny from the block and replace her with an actor who I immediately fell in love with. Probably the best person, thing, idea to ever come out of Florida, Carla Gugino. (laughs) Does she single-handedly justify her... The existence of Florida, no one could, but Carla Gugino. Canceled after 10 episodes. A crime. A crime that was only justified or rectified or whatever a few years ago. When a story that shared the DNA of Elmore Leonard's creation, starring country mate to you, Matt, Kobe Smulders, in Stumptown, which was mm. in some ways very similar to the Karen Sisko. And of course, it was a pandemic fatality. But um, we'll get back to Karen Sisko in a minute. Quick quick question before before we, we go further yes. on with um, Elmore Leonard's adapted works. In <laughs> the original novel, is like what is Karen Sisko's ethnicity? I don't recall. It's been a while. Because it, it's it's interesting that you asked that, yeah. Yeah, just wondering because like I I actually wasn't aware of the the ten episode series of which I looked up and episode ten was directed by Catherine Bigelow. So there oh. we go. We've we've circled back to Point Break. But yeah, it was just interesting. As much as I I love 
Carla. Um, it's just interesting to cast her in a role that like most people would know as Jennifer Lopez. Right. But- I had actually forgotten that that this is the genesis of uh, Karen Sisko. I'd forgotten. I will say though, I am not sure Veronica Mars exists the following year had Karen Sisko not existed before. I'm just gonna I'm just, and I don't think Justified would have existed either. I think I think Carla Gino walked so a lot of people could run in the in the private investigator US Marshall Noir revival game. I cannot shout her name from the rooftops enough and it's a real shame. Sin City was great, but man. Anyway. Silk Spectre won herself. <laughs> Leonard comes back to his characters a lot. For instance, in 1999, he writes Be Cool, which is Chili Palmer, who has the most, like, you know, gangsters die. That's just the thing that happens. But if a gangster doesn't die, what happens? He becomes a music executive. (laughs) So that, of course... You loved him as a movie executive. You're going to love him now as a music executive. So he comes back. So that movie's filmed in 2004, the year... After Karen Sisko, the series in 2003. And then finally... I thought you were going to say when we invaded Iraq. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know. So uh, Leonard died uh, uh, a decade or so ago. But before he left, he had uh, two of his three final works. 2009's Road Dogs. Jack Foley is back. There's actually a sequel to Out of Sight written. And then... A few years into the Justified Television series, he writes what I believe is his last novel, Raylan, which is a, a tie-in to the series, but a sequel to uh, a novel he had written almost 20 years before. I, I really like the way that Elmore writes noir. And so, again, Matt picked this, but I, we finished watching New Girl recently. And I bring this up because of Jake Johnson, who is known as playing uh, what pop culture writers have dubbed the gentleman dirtbag, which is very much the character he plays in Stumptown as well. And so I think about George Clooney's character in Out of Sight. He's not a gentleman dirtbag. He's not the hard-boiled detective. He's like a, a sassy gentleman. Like and and I mean he's being George Clooney. But. Oh well, I mean yeah, and 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 you gotta love that. But then Karen Sisko is not a femme fatale, and so we were talking about inversions earlier, and I said this isn't an inversion of a film noir. This is an inversion of roles. What's the opposite of a femme fatale? A and I was like a professional woman who just wants you to live and do good things, who just wants the best for you. <laughs> I'm done now, Matt. What were you thinking? (laughs) Out of Sight wasn't the movie I was expecting. And I felt like like my initial reaction having seen it for the first time was that I had done what I had did to my grade six teacher in science class. We had to do reports on trees and I picked the banana tree (laughs) and the teacher approved it. And then I was writing the report and over the research found out that the banana tree is technically not a tree. <laughs> so I still, I like, I, I waited till like the end of the report to drop that little thing. Like in my conclusion, by the way, it's not a tree. 
Um, so I felt like I had done that to y'all because it was less of a straight noir than I was expecting. Okay, okay, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> it just, hi. It's Sam, your podcast host. In the notes, there is a bullet point that says, grade six banana tree report story. Now, which you just got. Which you have just heard. You have just, now you have just heard. Yeah. And the thing about that is, is you could have given me to quote John Oliver, infinity guesses as to what that meant. And I would have never come up with what you just said. <laughs> it's obviously what that story's about. It couldn't be about anything yeah. else, but I would have never yeah. guessed that. <laughs> Continue. I like to keep you guessing. But what we ended up getting was, or what I ended up getting in my my first view, is kind of this proto-Oceans heist movie with a little bit of that that Soderbergh energy with, like, noirish elements. And, Sam, you mentioned this this earlier as well. It's very much like a remix. Mm -hmm. I don't think Soderbergh is, is reinventing anything or subverting anything, per se. I mean, maybe a little bit in, like, some of the gender roles, as you just mentioned. But it's definitely a remix. I think a lot of the rapid pace of the the dialogue reminds me of like the code era noirs and kind of, you know, that, that double indemnity feel there. And like you guys talked about with Jarrett during the like forties episode about noirs relationship to screwball comedies vis-a-vis the, the dialogue and everything else. And I definitely think this had a little bit of that going for it a little bit too. Right. And I don't know if that's just the Clooney being Clooney thing and like Soderbergh kind of being a little bit like the Coen brothers and like they know really well how to use George Clooney, where around the same time you were making Batman and Robin and thinking he could do that and it not really working. Great Bruce Wayne, not a great Batman. I'm really glad you brought up the Coen brothers because I got a lot of a brother where art thou vibes from certain parts of this film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's just knowing how to use. Clooney and his very specific thing where it's like a lot of times when an actor is as handsome as someone like George Clooney or I think Colin Farrell is another good example of that who early in his career was like oh no you're hot you're in your 20s we're gonna like put you in like stock like leading man roles and that's not where Clooney or Farrell shine it's in more of I think I think Farrell's a better actor but in more of that kind of like character work and kind of that more like comedic sphere versus your um Oh, what was it? The Recruit, or what's the movie he'd SWAT, right? I, I, you know way more about Colin Farrell's filmography than I do. That's what comes from being in Miami Vice 2006, Dan. Oh. And also, like, talking about crime films like Michael Mann. You know, Mann, I still haven't seen Being it. a Michael Mann freak. And we're going we're gonna to get to Michael Mann, too, one of these days. You know... But George Clooney is an example of somebody who has made an entire career, a lucrative one at that, off of a singular facial expression. That smirk. <laughs> that, oh, I'm a bad boy. I'm just a... I'm, Sorry to blow out the levels I'm just there. A, I'm just a lovable scamp. And no matter what I do, you'll still love me because, gosh... I'm just a little devil, aren't I? That that giggle, though. I have never heard anyone giggle like that. I oh, I, I really George started Clooney. to appreciate it in ER, which I talked about 
several episodes ago, the fact that he's at, that's kind of where he got his start in his career. But I notice it more now because it's charming and delightful. But, he was, but see, here's the thing. Before he like got his breakout role on ER and then went on, you know, to work with Soderbergh and the Coen brothers and then up, up, up and up from there, he was doing the same shtick on the facts of life and all the other 80s sitcoms he booked guest spots on. Uh, he was on Golden Girls. Uh, but he was doing the same thing. Never changed. I mean, if it works, it works. I also have to say that, th- and this goes with Clooney as an actor, and this goes with, like like you said, Matt, his strengths, because it reminds me of A Brother Art Thou, which comes out a, f- a couple of years later. This is a bad at crime movie. <laughs> and I <laughs> love, it's my favorite. Bad really? at crime movies are great. I was not expecting this to be a bad at crime movie, but that whole first sequence where he successfully robs a bank only to be foiled by the fact that his car won't start is... It's amazing. I love it. I love Bad at Crime. And I love that he tells her later, like, 99% of all bank robbers are idiots, which is like, just, there's so much about this film and the comedy and the way that it's built into the DNA of the film. It doesn't feel like a satire of anything. It feels like the comedy genuinely comes from these characters and from the absurdity of the situation that they're in. I just... It works so well for me. And, and by the way, I would like to invoke what I like to call the Steve Zahn principle of competence, which is <laughs> if you are ever wondering if a movie is about competent characters or not, as soon as Steve Zahn comes on the screen, the answer is no, <laughs> no, they will not be competent at what they're doing for some reason. What did you think about the cast, Matt? Because this is quite a cast. Similar to Devil in a Blue Dress, it was one of those, oh, they're in this? Oh my God, they're in this. Oh, it's them, right? So it was, yeah, it was like, oh, Catherine Keener? Yes. Definitely, it's it's one of those one of those movies. And again, even not knowing, and I'm going to probably watch Jackie Brown this week because that's one of my other monkeys, but not knowing the Leonard connection where it's like, oh, Michael Keaton shows up as a one the one scene Baxter? Like, you know, because again, this movie kind of has a bit of a romantic comedy like energy to it a little bit too, right? So the Baxter being a romantic comedy trope, not knowing that he's playing his Jackie Brown character or, you know, the cameo at the end with, with Samuel L. Jackson. But, I have to uh, say, Samuel L. Jackson yeah, swears a lot more in Jackie Brown than he does in this little cameo. <laughs> but yeah, no, I love the Michael Keaton thing because he is such... I kind of want to know, though, like where this comes in the chronology. Like, is this after Jackie Brown? Is it before Jackie Brown? I don't know. I don't. But I did love the Keaton because he plays such an asshole in Jackie Brown. And he's the same person and he's dating Karen Sisko kind of. And like, it's it's perfect. It works so well. I didn't know they did this in the 90s. So it's it's a real shame they couldn't get Val Kilmer in this movie somewhere because then we would have had three Batmans. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You also have Viola Davis in a bit role. It took me a minute to recognize her, but she is there. Isaiah Washington is in this. Same scene. Yeah. Same scene. Same scene. They are like siblings, I think. I don't. Yeah, I. it's a... I think so. Yeah, it is a definitely a deep cast as well. Uh, that Cheadle guy. 
And that Cheadle guy. Yeah, this is the second one we've watched this week that involves Don Cheadle. Not just Don Cheadle, but John T- Don Cheadle as a primary antagonist slash psycho. Like- well, and let's not forget that Ving Rhames, along oh, yeah. with George Clooney, was on ER. Yes. And, so- and, inter- <laughs> and, and of course, I mentioned that that we had a character from Devil in a Blue Dress who was also in ER, but Bing Rames's same point of contact on ER was the exact same character. Yep, that is absolutely true. Well, small this, this is also his Mission Impossible character too, right? Yes. Like, yes. yeah, that that's, it's like, and this movie does like hang a lot on Bing Rames as buddy because like, and especially in contrast to the movie we just talked about, the, the one of the main knocks I will have on Out of Sight, aside from the score, which does not hold up. <laughs> um, very, It's not great, Bob. Um, did not enjoy it. Is like the racial politics yeah. of some of this are kind of messed up and the ways in which like Don Cheadle and Isaiah Washington's characters behave. And like, yeah, Ving Rhames is there as like, an alternative portrayal of, of blackness. He gets but to wear glasses when you're, <laughs> that's how you know he's a that's nice how you guy. Know. And he has the, de- he has the devout sister um, who he confesses to, which is again, a fun, a funny bit. And that's how they got caught the one time. Cause he did it before, but yeah, it's just like, and again, sending the heist in Detroit and like Albert Brooks is in this movie guys. Yeah, <laughs> like, what are you going to do? What a cast. So I do, I do think some of that's not great and kind of leaning into like, some some not great stereotypes there and I, I it kind of reminded me a little bit of the first um of the first doctor strange movie where it's like in the promo to this <laughs> they're gonna hang a lot on wong and they're gonna show a lot of wong and we're gonna get a lot of wong because you know hey this movie can't be you know racist because wong's here guys <laughs> i felt like it was doing a little bit of that like structurally with ving rames but uh I don't know. It's it's still a fun movie, like in spite of that. But it's kind of like the most '90s thing about the episode, right? So, or episode about the movie. Sorry, most '90s things in the episode is uh something we talk about <laughs> in Pod Race with Elise a lot. I wanted to ask you though, what elements of this do you see as being noir? Uh, for me, it's actually Bing Rames confessing, calling his sister, and confessing a lot because that seems like something that would be a joke in the '40s, like that character based yeah. like comedy again we get used to the flashbacks you know and we start with that that botched bank robbery which is later after all our, that we get reintroduced to kind of um all the characters in the past and what leads us up to the the heist of of albert brooks's place um also like as sam was pointing out earlier Clooney's the femme fatale in this. Like, again, it's like an inversion, but if like Karen Sisko is our like detective character, it's like the temptation for her to get off, to not do her job effectively. It's George Clooney, but then also she's operating as a femme fatale for him. So it's like, they're both lead. They're like both leads in their own story and being tempted off their chosen path by, by the other, um, the rapid dialogue. And then also like, just, and these 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 have to be lines from the book because these just are so good. Um, they put a gun on you and you still have a choice. That just feels like so noir. Or I wish things were different. You know, like, so I think some of the high drama and like 
the tragedy of these folk, these two people not being able to be together and the idea of like, yeah, you have a gun on you and you're facing death, but you still have a choice. You can choose your own death or you can choose to be incarcerated or whatever, right? So I think that has some of those more no-re elements. I was just expecting something that was a little more, maybe not as heightened as Basic Instinct, but knowing this movie by reputation about it being potentially peak hotness for Jennifer Lopez and George Clooney and like their relationship. I, I was expecting something a little more erotic thrillery than this movie actually. Yeah. There's not really any thrillerness to this movie. Like it's definitely more comedic. I wanted to ask Sam though, does this remind you more of something like the thin man in terms of, yeah, if we're going to talk about forties noir, this seems more in that tradition than it would be like double indemnity or something like that. Well, I mean, the, well, okay. So there are a couple of things to think about here. One, I would compare George Clooney favorably to William Powell. I I think that there's an obvious Cary Grant comparison there, and I won't deny you that. But I think his smarm, his smarm, his smarm <laughs> charm is actually more William Powell than it is Cary Grant. I mean, you can't lose either way. I think the other thing to think about is to once again remind that Clooney struggles a bit uh, to break out of, you know, there was this this habit of actors, David Duchovny, to think that you can do Bruce Willis, except that worked, to think that you could leave your small screen TV gig and do better on screen. Which, as I said, you know, Bruce Willis, George Clooney, David Duchovny, uh, and it works for some and not for others, David Duchovny. But it didn't look like Clooney was going to catch on. Out of Sight was modestly, you know, reviewed, as was uh, Three Kings was actually pretty critically lauded, and it was the first, one of the first signs. Oh, brother, where art thou? Is a is a much you know by the time you get to a brother War Thou and Three Kings you start to see maybe this is gonna work out for him maybe this kid's gonna make it finally but but just to remind you that the character that Clooney is playing in Oh Brother Where Art Thou is allegedly the character from the movie that the main character of Sullivan's Travels directed by Preston Sturgis one of the kings of the screwball comedy genre wrote and directed there. I think that, I think I landed that sentence. Yeah. I think that there's a lot, there's to, a tradition there. Yeah. But I think there is a lot of Nick and Nora in their relationship. Like the oh, fact yeah. that they're I, trapped in a trunk together and they're talk, which is, you know, the romance fan in me is like, Oh, close okay. proximity. But then like, you know, they're talking about movies and like, they're going, you know, it's very much that like immediate connection Okay, listen. Back and forth. Listen, here's the thing I got to say, though, and I'll be the one to say it, and you guys can tell me I'm wrong if you want, but if you agree, I will have said it. I will bear, I will be the sole, Ben Affleck, don't come after me. I think she's great, but I don't think she's a great actor, dude. I do not like Jennifer Lopez as an actor. In fact, I think Hustlers is the first time I've seen her act and been like, yep, that'll work for me. I don't think she's great in this movie. I'm trying to think what other J-Lo movies have I seen? The Cell wasn't a good movie. Made in Manhattan. You didn't like her in Anaconda? I haven't seen that. 
Uh, I, I mean, there's a reason I liked Carla Gugino as Karen Sisko so much. I think, weirdly, and this is what strikes me as very bizarre, J-Lo doesn't bring the sass required to this role. And if you say, name me a pop star sass master, I'll get to J-Lo pretty quickly. So I don't get it. That's it. She does say. wear the hell out of that frosted lip gloss at the end, though. I have to say, she like, wears that the hell was, out of everything in that. Movie. Yeah, Let's that was clear. that was the uh, her fashion in this was so '90s. It was like incredible, Beautiful. like in the best way. Yeah, um, but yeah, that frosted that frosted lip gloss got me at the end. But I, I don't know. Like, she and Clooney do have a lot of chemistry, though. So I'm sure that was kind of. Like, based on that, I'm sure that's why they cast her, is that they have this, like, good chemistry together. But you're right. It's not quite as much back and forth as maybe you would want. What's interesting to me, and it's like, because it's uh, thank you for mentioning Hustler's great, amazing movie, is that, Let like, me wrap you in my first. That first. Man, oh, man. But, I, like, that is very much, like, on her presence, yeah. too. Right? And, like... A lot of I remember reading at the time it came out was this is the best JLo has been since Out of Sight, right? Because like it is, con- I think this is considered one of her like best performances. Um, so it's interesting that you say that. But like watching it, I had a tough time taking this, this performance at face value because I could see the thread of what people seeing this would then cast her in something like Made in Manhattan later, like in that kind of romantic straight romantic comedy like energy and i don't think she's bad in this but like i could see those elements of the performance what would where they like pigeonhole it in that kind of early 2000s romantic comedy space and where she kind of got got trapped air quotes doing that for a while but yeah like the thing with like i think her performance in this movie and clooney's whole thing specifically is it's like they are actors no, sorry. They're not actors. They're movie stars. Yes. Right? Uh-huh. And I don't think we have movie stars. The movie stars that we have that have that kind of screen presence and that energy are holdovers from the 90s. I don't think anyone that's become famous as in like an actor in the same way that like is like one of like the Gen X elder millennial tweeners or is a millennial is a movie star in the same way. I think part of that is like how the industry has changed, right? And the type of pictures we make now, well, we make, they make now. I'm not going to include myself in that. Yeah, we do better. But yeah, we don't have movie stars. We don't have movie stars in the same same way anymore. We don't have star-driven movies. Like, what's that new one that's with Clooney and Roberts that just came out? Oh, yeah. Like, we don't make movies like that anymore. Like, Sandra Bullock's another one. She's a movie star. Well, you know, it's... Don't know she's like the best actor. It's, but. it's really funny that you say that in, in context of Jennifer Lopez, because by sheer coincidence, I have been following her career since basically the beginning because I was a weekly watcher of the Fox sketch show in Living Color when I was a child. And there are, you know, the weigh-ins and uh, David Allen Greer, uh, of course, had long careers. But there are two big names that came out of In Living Color. One is Jim Carrey, and the other is Jennifer Lopez. And, you know, so she was a fly girl. So, you know, if you've watched Saturday Night Live, 
you know that a lot of times when they cut to commercial, they show the band and the guy wailing on the saxophone, right? On In Living Color, the bumper was the Fly Girls dancing, R&B dancing. And that's that's J-Lo. And the next time we see her is as Selena. In, in the, she does other things, of course, but that's her big break is Selena. And so here, I mean, that is acting, but she got that role because she can sing. Jennifer Lopez is a dancer and a singer. First and second in my mind. She's an actor third. And I actually did a double take when I was reminded that On the Six, her debut album comes out after Out of Sight. Like she went from dancer to actor on the back of her ability to sing to actor to then famous for her music, which I think is what she's most known for. I know it's weird. She's Jenny from the block. I mean, that's that's the song. That's why that's how people know her. I will say, though, Matt, especially if you plan on watching Jackie Brown, which I think you should, because I think it's one of Quentin Tarantino's best films but probably not due to him, probably due to Elmore Leonard. It is a very different feel from this. It is definitely more noir um, than, than this is. And it's, I mean, it's funny, but it's funny in a more coincidental, absurdist sort of so, way than this is. Tarantino, Tessa. In a less Soderbergh well, Yeah, But th- that's exactly it. Tarantino said he tried to not be Tarantino in making this film. He tried to make his directorial choices purely based on how Leonard wrote it. And it's it's an excellent film. It is an excellent film. Um, So I definitely recommend that if you're interested in this universe, Jackie Brown is actually a really good place to start. But, uh, but it, it was really cool though, seeing like the extension of this universe. And I will also say, even though this film it doesn't live in Florida the same way that Blood Simple lives in Texas. It is interesting to see Florida as this other place where noir can happen. We've been talking so much about California, and that's like where a lot of classic noir happens. And I haven't mentioned this, but both Devil in a Blue Dress and Basic Instinct have that classic driving on the California coast with tense music in the background. You know, like it's it's very like it's that sweeping imagery. But then, you know, Blood Simple, what what the Coen brothers are trying to do is that like Midwest and Southern like noir, you know, like that rural noir. And they do that in Fargo as well. This is interesting because Florida just seems like a completely different environment. And yet it makes sense because Florida has like this sort of seediness, you know, to some parts of their cities like Miami and, you know, and so it it does work, I think, in that context. I I just kind of wish there was more of it in this film. Like it, more Florida, I mean. <laughs> That's the first yeah, time and anybody like that, ever that said that. Yeah, that interest of like... Uh-huh. And I think like that other interest in like other locales kind of feels like something that Soderbergh's interested in. Like, again, it's not being a noir. It's more on like the oceans, like heist movie side of it. But Lucky Logan, when it was doing like the press tour for that a couple of years ago, part of I think why it was such kind of like a, you know, kind of sleeper not thought of movie is it's like Soderbergh like is quoted as like, this was this is about a flyover state in the fly, like you know what I mean, and specifically like wanting it advertised to like more traditionally like rural areas instead of you know it premiering and being like a coastal film, right? And so that's I think that's that sense of place 
is something that I think interests Soderbergh a little bit. Well, and Elmore Leonard, because Jackie Brown is also in Florida. So it it does have that sort of similarity. Yeah. I just want to say, by the way, that anytime we we have Matt on the podcast, it will immediately become three queers talk about whatever they're talking about this week. And, <laughs> you know, I as, as, as somebody who went through the majority of their life not knowing that they were queer, I think it's 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 fun. It's it's a lot of fun. I also think uh, y'all ought to think real carefully before allowing me to talk about the 90s again. I just think that that's... <laughs> kind of a you take the good you take the bad Look, we're having matt back next year to do our verhoven episode it's oh gonna be God. like five hours long we just need to like plan i, I think around we need it. to lean into it i think it might need to be a two-parter because <laughs> here's why like tessa has not seen robocop i have tessa has not seen showgirls i have boy oh boy are those movies I am real. I haven't seen Starship Troopers. I know Tess has been wanting me to see that for years, but I'm looking forward to catching up on Elle and Benedetta as well. So I don't know that we can be contained. <laughs> There's so much to do. Let's just not watch Total Recall, you guys. <laughs> can Can I preface your Benedetta watch with a connection to this episode? Please do. One of the and I and again it was I. I don't know if it was on the blank check episode about Benedetta or like, I can't remember where I, I read this. So sorry to whomever had this original thought. Watch Benedetta, huh? the titular Benedetta through the lens of Catherine Trammell. Ooh, nice. All right. And I'm see, excited. that's, I think that's the, that's the best possible version of the auteur theory right there where you don't, you don't use it to define greatness or to valorize or idolize a person you use it to to have that lens through which to better understand a film it's but it's one lens it's not the only lens so i'm really glad you brought that up it's gonna be fun well and you can even like analyze it through robocop too because like verhoven's got his whole like yeah you know jesus scholar thing going on too right this is gonna be great i'm gonna be like stupid award season let's get the oscars over i want to watch robocop let's go already (laughs) Okay, next time. Hey, we're not done with November yet. Jack's gonna be with us to round out. We're gonna we're gonna twenty first century noir next week. We're gonna have some good times. We're gonna look at a. I don't know. They feel diverse. We'll see how diverse they are. We're gonna check in with Ryan Johnson, who who made the audience acclaimed Star Wars film, <laughs> and then the little indie sleeper with Daniel Craig. But before all that, <laughs> the aforementioned Bruce Willis. Yes. Before all that, we're going to talk about the movie that he made with Third Rock from the Sun alum and possible Batman. I don't know. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. That's right. I'm talking about Brick, a movie that I... Brick is one of the very few movies in my did not finished list. So it's going to be interesting to get back to that. We're also going to be looking at another heavy hitter director, Sidney Lumet's film, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, with the always great King of the Gingers, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And finally, speaking of kings, King of Bisexual Lighting, Nicholas Reffin's Drive. Who's gonna drive you home? He, I, I, I have gone on record about how I feel about the lead actor of that particular film as being the king of meh. 
So noted. Yeah, and and I just know from our previous discussion of Neon Demon that whatever the discussion is about Drive, we will all agree and we will all have smiles on our faces. <laughs> it's it's we have good times here on Monkey Off My Backlog. What's not to love? We've been recording this episode for almost two and a half hours. I don't know how long it's gonna be when it gets released, but I just wanted you to know that's how long we talked. We talked about what a, I had a good time. I hope you had a good time. Matt, where can people find you online to hear about how good of a time you had? Yeah, you can follow me on Letterboxd at, at Mattyhugh, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. You can also catch me talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine over at Pod Race with friend of the pod of this pod, if I can speak for our two hosts, um, Elise. Tessa. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at the Buy Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. By the time this episode comes out, I believe we will have just released our Thief of Time episode. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. You can find more from Tessa and Sam on Movie John. That's movie, J-A-W-N. Com. We both have our personal top 10 film lists, uh, write-ups about those, and I will have, or will have in the next couple of days, my personal introduction to film noir. Hey, that's what we talked about the last three weeks on here, too. Neat. And Tessa will be beginning her series on post-humans in film, artificial bodies, artificial lives. I'm Ron Burgundy. Send us your thought. You need to see that movie someday. I've seen Just... that movie. You keep pretending that I haven't, but I have. It's <laughs> <laughs> Talladega Nights you haven't seen. Yes, I have not seen Talladega Nights. Now I'm trying to decide what that whole, like, um, oh, what were they, like, like, Frat Pack or what, whatever yeah. those, like, Adipow yeah. comedies say about the early Been 2000s, fun. like, culturally, because we're talking. Yeah. 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 Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. There it is. Please rate review on... (laughs) Next page. What the hell? (laughs) Please. Oh, my God. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.